Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Fires continue in California, although possibility of rain next week. Greece bans sales of alcohol after midnight. Ongoing challenges for Australian wineries in China. New single vineyard classifications announced in Suave. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. So, as we usually do, let's begin by um, looking at our week in wine. And um, Katie, you helped organise another webinar. We seem to be doing that a lot since uh, coronavirus happened. This one is particularly interesting and unusual because it was celebrating Moldovan wine, which may be not a wine country that uh, people know too much about or have too much chance to taste, but it certainly sounds very interesting. And I watched the webinar that you um, helped organise and learnt a lot from it. For example, 4% of Moldova is covered with vineyards, so wine production is very important there. Uh, but tell us more about it, Katie. Well, I did have to get up on a Saturday morning to help produce this webinar, but it was well worth it. webinar was hosted by Jamie Good, uh, who is a wine writer, lecturer, and judge in, based in the UK. And the panel was quite large, but um, really expert opinions from all over the world, uh, MWs, sommeliers, um, really educated people who knew a lot about Moldovan wine. Most of them had all traveled to Moldova and were able to really give a, a good insight about you know, what the wine regions are like, the history, the indigenous grape varieties. Uh, and it was really fun because one of the wines uh, that was presented is actually made by an old friend of mine who I went to school with in Dijon, uh, was a wine business uh, master's program. And so uh, Dan Prisakaru and Diana Prisakaru, they were recently married when I met them back in 2012. And they were doing the program uh, just before they were headed back to Moldova to start the family winery. And so now I see that they're doing very well. And the wine that they presented was actually a Blanc de Noir, but not a sparkling wine, a still wine, but made from Cabernet Sauvignon and Feteasca Negra. Easy for you to say. I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. But anyway, it was sort of the star of the show. Everyone was very excited about this wine, and I'm pretty keen to try it. Although Dan did tell me I'd have to import it from Canada. So that that was kind of the big point is that, you know, I think in the U.S. at least, you know, these wines are not very available. Um, so it's kind of spreading the word and trying to get the message to the gatekeepers so they see some more distribution. Yes, I certainly would have liked to have uh, tried the wines, but very difficult to get here in California. But hopefully these webinars um, alert people to that wine is being made in Moldova and that there's a real history of winemaking there and there's indig indigenous varieties. But there's also a lot of contemporary um, methods as well. So the wines uh, appeal to contemporary international audiences. And so hopefully those wines will um, begin to flourish. Yes, and if you want to catch the webinar, uh, you can view the recording on the Wine of Moldova YouTube channel. I think they'll uh, get the video live in the next few days. Yeah, well worth watching. And now on with the news. So on a less lighthearted note, uh, another week of fire, smoke, and ash here in California, with fingers crossed for cooler temperatures in the coming week, and even some rain on Saturday in the forecast. The fires are concentrated in St. Helena in northern Napa Valley, with around 24,000 hectares of land having burnt, spreading north into Angwin and Calistoga, and affecting Sonoma County to the west and Shasta County to the north. 
So far, 173 homes in Napa and 120 in Sonoma have been destroyed, and wineries have been heavily affected, including Chateau Boswell, which was enveloped in the fire. With winds blowing the fires in different directions, the so-called glass fire has been hard to contain, especially as northern Napa Valley has not been affected by wildfires before, so there is a cocktail of dry grass and brush to burn. However, winds calmed down over the weekend, helping fire crews contain the fire, and temperatures are set to cool with rain forecasts for Saturday. Yes, it's been um, a pretty stressful week all around with um, smoke and ash in the air. Uh, we're here in Petaluma, quite far from the fires, but still been really, really heavy with dark skies. And just visiting Sonoma or Napa is far worse and quite oppressive. So what does this mean, Katie, for the 2020 vintage? I know we discussed this a little bit last week. Do we still feel smoke taking is going to be a huge issue for this vintage? I think the main issue is quantity, really. Um, most of the winemakers that I've spoken with, they're not going to make wine if their grapes were indeed infected by smoke taint. Um, there's lots of tests going on, you know, micro fermentations uh, so that winemakers can, can see what's going on with the fruit. Um, they send it out to labs to be tested. Um, and then if it's not up to snuff, then, you know, the probably not going to go ahead and make that wine. So for the end consumer, I don't think we're going to see a, a ton of smoke-tainted wines in the market by any means, um, but there may be less wine made in 2020. Good quality wine, but less of it is kind of the message for the 2020 vintage. Uh, but let's have a quick discussion of why these fires are occurring and why they're occurring, where they are occurring. Well, wildfires have always been a part of you know California's history. Uh, we've seen them periodically throughout the past and obviously nowadays with climate change and you know increasing temperatures they might be more frequent and in the you know we noted that the uh, fires that the fire going on now is kind of burning all the area that the 2017 fires missed so it is sort of all this brush and uh, dry grass, you know, it, it needs to burn and it's sort of the, the land cleaning, cleaning itself out. Um, but yes, of course, you know, with vineyards uh, so heavily planted in the Napa Valley and obviously so many people living in this area, it, it's much bigger of a deal nowadays than historically. <laughs> So last week, the pod reported on the decision in the UK to force bars and restaurants to close at 10pm in order to help curtail the spread of COVID-19. Even the Houses of Parliament bar has now been forced to close at 10pm after some public disquiet that MPs were allowed to carry on drinking when they were not. In Greece, it was this week announced that in 10 regions across the country, sales of alcohol between midnight and 5am have been banned, with potential fines of €5,000 for businesses breaking the rules. Petrol stations and pharmacies are allowed to stay open, but not sell alcohol, while markets, liquor stores and kiosks have to close completely during those hours. In France, cases of COVID-19 have begun to rise again, particularly in major cities such as Paris, Lyon and Marseille. This has raised the possibility of reintroducing restrictions on bars and restaurants, and even complete closures. Marseille has already had stricter measures imposed on the city by the national government, leading the mayor, Samia Ghali, to state, we have asphyxiated the city. The measures taken in Greece seem quite tame compared to France and the UK. In France, the prospect of forced reclosures 
has not been received kindly, fearing that a second lockdown would kill the restaurant industry. So, Matthew, how are these countries going to deal with continuing cases of COVID-19? I mean, it seems like there is no end in sight. It's sort of this up and down, up and down. And can we afford a second lockdown? And that's the question, because um, in Europe, a lot of these countries have kind of opened up more than here in California. Across the U.S., it has been quite inconsistent. And so we're kind of here in California, we're kind of in the same stage as we were in March and April, just um, gradual indoor dining being allowed, but still a lot of, um, we're in effect in partial lockdown. Uh, But those countries that have opened up more in Europe are now having to address that question is that do they go back to how they were in, in March and April when everything was shut and even in cases people not being allowed outside of their house or their flat? Can people stomach those restrictions? Can businesses cope with those restrictions? Or are governments going to have to find a different way to deal with the um, the spread of COVID-19 with um, social distancing, the wearing of masks, but still allowing people out and about and still allow them to, um, to dine and to drink um, outside of their house? And I think governments aren't quite sure what to do and quite how people are going to react. And of course, as we go into the winter, outdoor dining Uh, becomes much more difficult. So again, how are bars and restaurants going to cope with that? Yes, that was my comment. You know, here in California, we have a pretty temperate climate. So even in the winter, uh, you can feasibly dine outside, but that's obviously different in Europe. There are many really cool climate countries and wintertime, you're not staying outdoors to dine. Yes. And we've kind of seen that um, the last couple of weeks here in California, because um, you want to go outside and enjoy it and because also um, you're not allowed to eat and drink inside in most places but it's been really really smoky so sitting outside and having a beer or having a meal isn't that enjoyable and it's going to be like that for many people in winter as well do you really want to be outside but are you allowed to be inside so it's a double um, whammy The pod reported a couple of weeks ago on the strained relationship between Australia and China, which has emerged as such an important export market for Australia in recent years. China had accused Australian wineries of flooding the market with inexpensive wine to keep prices down. The Chinese government also announced that they would investigate subsidies they suspected the Australian government were giving to producers. In the initial accusation, 10 Australian wineries were named and due to be investigated by the Chinese government. But other producers have also registered to be investigated in the prospects of gaining future favour from China. However, three of the producers don't actually export, so there is some confusion over which producers are being investigated and why. 31 companies have signed up to the investigation, which involves a questionnaire, which has been criticised by Tony Bataglin of Australian Grape and Wine. It's 80 pages long, it's incredibly intrusive information on your cost of production, your brands, everything about your sales channel, your shareholders, your ownership. So this is rather like the US tariffs on European wine. Uh, The Australian wine industry seems to be being punished for political reasons, not of their own making. Beef and barley exports are also being investigated as part of a tactic termed punishment diplomacy. Uh, There is talk of China imposing 200% tariffs on Australian wine, which would be a huge blow given the success of their wines over the last 10 to 15 years. And as global superpowers try to maintain or increase their strength, the threat of tariffs is going to continue to be a major danger and talking point. Over the last 10 to 15 years, China has been the target market for um, all wine 
regions and countries because there's so much potential there, such a large population and um, a growing middle class who are open to drinking wine. But obviously China is an unpredictable country politically and very protective, very centralized. And so what the Chinese government says, everyone has to do. And so it's, it's a volatile market to have to work with. And this is what Australian wine producers seem to be discovering after all the success they've had in China. And now they're going to have some struggles dealing with governments and bureaucracy and their protectionism. And now to Italy and Suave in the Veneto in northeast Italy. And Suave produces some of Italy's greatest white wines from the Garganega grape variety mostly. Although, like many Italian regions, its reputation suffered in the 1970s and 1980s from overproduction and an indifferent quality. However, since the 1990s, there has been a concerted effort to increase quality and focus on the best sites, most notably in Suave Classico, where the historic vineyards are located on hillside slopes. This focus on site selection continued this week with the announcement of 33 single vineyard classifications. They are called additional geographical units and are the equivalent of a crew. The selection is based on terroir, history, and quality. 28 of the sites are within Suave Classico, with another three in the western part of Suave and two in the eastern part. Between them, the 33 sites cover 2,660 hectares, 38% of the Appalachian. The 2019 vintage will be the first to label the vineyards, amounting to around 3.5 million bottles with the designations. So probably the last thing a consumer needs is another word on an Italian label that they um, don't understand. But I think it's, it is important because it increases the emphasis on quality, which can only be a good thing, and it also makes the origin of the wine more precise. And that gives retailers and psalms an opportunity to describe the wine's unique selling point. So I think it gives more identity to the wine, and that's really important. Um, in Italy especially, where there can be real vagueness where the grapes come from, whether it's from a good site or an indifferent site. So I think more precision is a good thing. Yes, though I would comment on their choice of term, additional geographical units. Um, not so sure. But at least if there's some education going on around it and that the you know gatekeepers, the, the buyers, the retailers, the restaurateurs uh, get that education and are able to communicate that to the consumer, uh, then it will, like you say, be that just extra uh, point of quality and differentiation for Suave. Yes, additional geographical units is the English translation of the Italian. But the Italian is really hard to say, so I didn't put it in our notes. So that's going to be um, an extra difficulty for um, consumers and also people selling the wines and trying to pronounce it. Yes, they could have come up with something a lot more, uh, a lot s simpler and straightforward. Well, we'll go ahead and put that uh, Italian term in the description of the pod so that our listeners can see what it actually is. And now for our wine of the week. And we actually have two wines, don't we, Katie? Two vintages from one premier crew from Chambol Musigny. Yes, both opened uh, on the same night. So feeling very privileged to have such lovely wines side by side. So the two wines are from the same producer and the same vineyard, but from two different vintages. The producer is Frederic Magnien, who has been making wine in Burgundy, particularly in Cote de Nuit, since the mid-1990s. 
The vineyard is Charme, a premier cru in Chambon Moussigny, one of my favorites uh, of the Burgundy crews, uh, which is very stony because it was historically left fallow for a long period of time. So one of the wines was from 2007 and the other from 2017. And it really was fascinating to taste a young wine um, right next to an older one from the same vineyard. Both had a really ripe fruitiness to them, but still that firm tannin structure and that elegance that, that is Chambon Moussigny. Yes, and the 2017 was extremely approachable, even though it's still young, while the 07 maintained its freshness despite its age. And it was even more interesting to try them again the next day, when they'd opened up and developed, but, but still keeping their structure. And it's always a sign of a good wine when the next day it's evolved and it's something different, but it's still excellent. It's like tasting a different wine, but it's the same core to it. Uh, Katie, which was your favourite? Did you have one? Well, I think it was made evident by the first bottle we finished, uh, which was the 2007 for me. Yes, I think it's fascinating to try the 2017 alongside it and see what it is now, but it'd probably be even better in three to five years, if not more, whereas the 07 is just drinking perfectly right now with that perfect balance between freshness and maturity. A great example of Chambon Musigny and that elegance that you mentioned, but with a certain um, depth to it as well, a ripe, fruity core. Brilliant wines, and I think made all the better by tasting them side by side and not just on their own. Well, yes, you know, I know during our studies as wine students, uh, you now in the Master of Wine program and it's important that we taste these wines, right? These classic examples of, of Burgundy. But so often, I think you and I, we find ourselves with seeking out the kind of new, interesting wines that are great values. And that's not necessarily what Burgundy is associated with. But it was really nice to just visit these kind of these really traditional wines um, and see why they're benchmarks for the style. Absolutely. Got to drink the classics as well as the uh, funky stuff. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gone. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!